I think most things of uh, in in fintech will just be much more natural extensions of what what we're like what we're seeing. I mean, there'll be zero friction making payments. Um, you know, if you qualify qualify for a loan, uh, you know how how credit is is monitored. These things are going to be completely seamless. Um, you know, so I don't know if we're going to have chips, chips in our brain or link to our phones or, you know, some hologram that pops up. But, uh, but I think it's just, it's just about there, there'll be zero friction. It'll be totally just part of everyday life and not, not in a overbearing way. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society. And this podcast is a big part of that effort. Today, we have Mike Packer, partner of QED Investors on the pod. QED is one of the big dogs in fintech investing. They have roughly $5 billion of assets under management, and the firm was founded by one of the founders of Capital One. Now, we obviously get into all things fintech in this conversation, but we also dive into Latin America, where Mike happens to focus his investing efforts. If you're interested in either fintech or LATAM, or the intersection of the two, this pod is for you. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Mike, thanks for being here, dude. Thanks for having me, Mark, um, and Interplay. It's great to be here. Very cool. I, I am excited to get into this. There's a lot of stuff I want to learn from you. Uh, could you start off by giving us an overview of QED? For sure. So we're, uh, we're an early stage fintech-focused venture firm. Uh, we focus globally um, with a few exceptions, but uh, pretty spread around the world at this point. We've been around for about 15 years. Uh, about five billion under management, um, and twenty-one people are on our investment team. Um, currently investing out of a pair of funds uh, that equal about a billion dollars. Half focused on the early stage, and half focused on growth. Uh, and we are very actively looking for um, high-growth fintech investments, and uh, you know the future winners. What, what's the profile? It sounds like there's two sides to the house, the early stage and the growth. But if you were going to give someone listening who's thinking about reaching out to you a profile, what is that? Well, I think we, um, may, maybe to our detriment, we'll, we're, we're kind of suckers for anything fintech. And so we'll talk as early as anybody wants to, wants to reach out. We like trading ideas. A lot of us are former operators really looking to kind of get into you know, the weeds of how um, you know, businesses are run and, and some of the strategy of uh, you know, how to build the initial stages of business. So we're, we're really pretty, pretty flexible, but I, I'd say our sweet spot tends to be, um, although all the terms, um, you know, we're speaking in uh, August uh, tw- 22, um, all the, the round terms of kind of uh, new meanings, but I think our, our typical sweet spot has been a series A where a company is is starting to, if not found, product market fit, has a, cu- a few good hypotheses uh, in terms of channel strategies and scale strategies. And so something that we can kind of work with in terms of, of uh, data. Um, but that said, I mean, we're really setting up our firm to go idea to IPO. 
and we want to be able to back you know the best companies at at any stage and um, we want to also be uh, high conviction investors and so when we invest you know at the seed stage or series a stage you know to your point we're we're hoping to follow on with our winners um, in getting you know 20 30 50 million dollars into companies over the life and really set up to to stay influential over time. So anybody in fintech who wants to talk, we're uh, we're always open for business, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll find we know a little bit what we're talking about. You do pre-seed. We have done some pre-seed. Uh, we we've been testing it a little bit, uh, somewhat in reaction to to the market uh, last year, but but you probably more um, you know historically we've done it with ideas that we've seen work in other places. Uh, so we've been fortunate to be part of, you know, founding a few companies with, with entrepreneurs um, and, and from, you know, from the very beginning of ideas and helping refine ideas, um, ClearScore in the UK, uh, WageStream in the UK, uh, Fairplay in Mexico, Minu in Mexico, uh, just, a, just a few examples of businesses we were involved in from the very beginning. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, we, we kind of refer to that as a bit of a cheat code where we know the product has worked somewhere else. Um, and we kind of been part of that, those stories, we, we have a little bit more conviction on taking, you know, that type of, of, uh, product risk. And you guys typically lead. We do like to lead. I mean, we're a large fund. Um, you know, the history of, of QED is, has been getting, uh, you know, it's all about the fund getting bigger and bigger. And so part of the reality of that, uh, leads us, well, I guess to use the, the a bit of a pun, but leads us to want to lead more um, because mm-hmm. um, you know getting getting the amount of capital work, but that that usually comes in again at, at Series A or Series B. It's much more important. Uh, I think most of our seed efforts and pre-seed efforts are very much collaborative, um, you know, with funds and with entrepreneurs and angels and trying trying to just kind of be part uh, of of the learning and and be part of. Um, you know, the initial stages of a company. Um, so we do tend to lead and we do tend to, to take pretty active roles when we're making, uh, making our, our investments. And so with that, a lot of times we're setting up the you know, uh, first, first board or the second iteration of boards and, and helping the companies get started on their governance journeys as well. That's awesome. That's super helpful. I think most entrepreneurs aren't excited about governance process, but getting it right early can make relationships a lot easier. Yeah, I don't know if we uh, we we make it fun, but uh, but we we certainly try to do it in a custom custom way for for companies because there's no you know you know there's no one answer for for you know governance or how to run a board and we uh, we realize that and I'm I personally learning a ton about how to influence uh, and think about those types of things because on one hand it's really you know you have to do these things as the company gets bigger and managing capital uh, you know on the other you don't want to get in the way of running a business uh, and making sure that there's the right focus of delivering product and, and get, you know, actually making progress. B2B or B2C or both? Both. Um, I think we've tended to be more B2C um, as that's where a lot of our experiences have, have come from uh, in the past. Uh, we've got a pretty uh, strong tie to, to Capital One. Um, so our, our founder of QED is Nigel Morris, who's one of the co-founders of Capital One. And I myself uh, spent a bunch of time there and a few of the other partners did uh, as well. And so, you know, through our experiences there, we're a lot of B2C uh, businesses. 
um, and, and B to small B, I would say we, we kind of throw in the same, same bucket in terms of small business space. Um, but we do, we do do B2B and, and we've done a bunch of things in the um, you know, fintech infrastructure space. We're pretty excited about, uh, but we tend to, to um, you know, not, not uh, understand or, or really, especially early stage, like the ability to underwrite the sales cycles for, for large uh, enterprise is something that, you know, we're not expertise experts at, and that's a place where we particularly look to partner with, with other investors as well. Yeah. That feels like a whole different animal sometimes. The, oh, the super long so sales cycle, huge ASP, exactly. Customer I mean, I concentration, it, the whole the whole nut. And if you don't know the the segment really well that you're selling into, it's very very hard to understand. You know what the buy decisions are based on, and so you could have best product in the world, uh, but you know poor poor sales process, or you know even get outflanked by a, by a uh, you know simpler product with better kind of sales sales match and so that that's the dynamic and again i personally um find that find that hard i think some of my partners are, are a little better uh, at that but uh, yeah you're exactly right we find that uh be pretty challenging okay so b2c b2smb fintech global um are there characteristics that you're kind of looking for you know are you just look are you looking for you know marketing equation what, what makes something in that world it's the first lens after sector stage for you guys? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's a good question in terms of first lens, because I don't think we're necessarily consistent. I think we try to be, you know, holistic looking at, uh, you know, what's the, what's the potential business model? You know, how do we see the market playing out specifically in terms of how profit pools will move or different kind of game theory of, of who can, who can win. Um, and then of course, you know, we think about the team. Uh, a lot, so I think some version of those filters we're we're trying to work our way through when we see opportunities, um, and then of course there are some sectors or or themes we might be a little bit more excited about at any given time, um, but th- those are really what we're trying to do. I mean, we're we're trying to make very long term investments uh, with you know uh, p- particularly large large uh, outcomes and not needing to do it overnight, and so needing to kind of see some of the some of the path. Um, or at least the initial path and get convinced there is really what we spend a lot of time on. Okay. Now you mentioned this before, but I, I did a little homework too, and know you guys have increased your, um, your fund sizes substantially. I want to distinguish between AUM and fund sizes. Often AUM is calculated as the carrying value of the company. So you might've put $2 million in, but if that position's now worth 20, you clock it at 20 on that count. But one of the big operating metrics that determines how you kind of scale a venture organization is how many dollars you're actually investing. And that's been going up for you guys, from what I understand. Um, my, my read on the website was you guys have now deployed $650 million, which is pretty sizable. Uh, how has the size of the funds impacted how you guys operate? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing question and one that, you know, it, 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 as you know, like, or as any fund would, we, we're kind of constantly, um, you know, discussing internally. You know, I think there's two or, two or three things that made it more comfortable for us. Um, and then, and then I'll get to kind of your, your, your question. I think, you know, we, we had come from uh, a background where we, we didn't have external LPs. We were fortunate to have, um, you know, particularly kind of not Nigel, uh, right, in, in investing 
our own capital in our first um, you know three three funds, so through 2016. And so as we started to think about you know where QED goes, and we realized that one of the big constraints we had was capital. And you know for better or worse, um, one of the things you'll find at QED is is we are very intellectually curious, very much this kind of hands on uh, approach and. You know, we found ourselves putting as much work into a million dollar check as a four million dollar check, and as much work into a, you know, ten or excuse me, two million dollar position and a twenty million dollar position to use your your numbers from before. And so, this kind of um, you know bandwidth insight was something that had been playing itself out over time. Um, and the other thing that kind of was happening is we were we were investing in multiple stages. Again, just we we just felt like we were under allocated from a check size. And so once those two th- realizations started kind of happening along the same same uh, time being capital constrained, we realized that raising kind of a bigger funds, we could do basically the same strategy and um, you know, same same bandwidth, same partners, just a little larger capital. Of course, it changed some some dynamics, which uh, which is your question. But but that's been a bit of the the theme. And so when I talked earlier about going from you know, idea at IPO, we really used to have this little niche that we could, you know, we could find lightning in a bottle at Series A, write a three, five million dollar check, you know, maybe hope to to follow on. And then, you know, that was that. And again, now we're talking about same level, well, again, it's probably increased, but similar levels of conviction and activity and involvement, but larger, larger checks. And so that's been the trend. I think the other thing, you know, We've expanded geography, um, and so we've expanded the partnership because of that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the market has uh, has changed dramatically since we started all this in 2017. Might be coming back to what we what we thought it was, just in terms of round sizes and valuations. So, so yeah, I mean, in terms of what we struggle with, I mean, we went from a world of you know really being able to cooperate with anyone, where you know if you wanted QED to invest alongside you, that was a lot easier. To do you as an invest, a generic kind of investor, and we found that that was a good source of uh, deal flow for QED early on because we had this expertise. We were willing to kind of put in the time and effort, and so it was very easy for us to to work uh, alongside other funds. And then as our funds got bigger, our checks got bigger, so getting round sat round dynamics, cap table dynamics together, you know, put us more into a, a competing for deals as opposed to working together for deals. Um, and then I think the uh, you know the other the other challenge that we have um, is you know just where we get to double, triple, quadruple down now has a much more meaningful impact to our funds. <clears throat> Excuse me, and as fund size increases, of course, and we expect our cash on cash returns to to come down, but we we think the ability to back you know really kind of sustainable, durable, long long term. Uh, you know, long-term oriented companies and positions is where we can make a lot of money for our limited partners. Yeah. The way I see it, there sounds like there's three levers to expanding your capital base operationally in a venture fund. Either have more partners, you do more deals per partner, larger volume, or you write larger checks per deal. And it sounds like the one you guys held constant from the sound of it was the deals per partner. And you know what's interesting when you get to twenty one, you have twenty one partners, right? That's a huge partnership for venture. I think kind of middle of the roads. We're twenty one invest investment professionals oh, okay. on the team. Okay, 
I was curious how you guys make decisions, because one of the things that gets challenging in larger organizations is there's just no way to scale everyone getting as intimate and close with a deal when there's that many deals coming through. And then how do you figure out the politics of which deals get the follow-up totally. capital? Um, it's a big thing. And I think people probably don't think about this on the outside, but you know, in a lot of firms, they do attribution, which means uh, future LPs and everyone else can see which deal an individual partner did. And that becomes basically their personal track record, not just the firm's track record. And so you can have dynamics where partners are jockeying for the follow-on rounds for their companies versus other partners' companies, which may not be the optimal thing for all the LPs, uh, just because they want to make sure they preserve their own personal track record. So how do you guys navigate a larger team? I'm always interested to hear best practices because I know it's something every firm has to grapple with and is thinking about. Uh, any best practices yeah. or thoughts that have made this kind of thing for you guys? Because I know you guys are you're got a functional operation over there. No, I, I, I appreciate you uh, having that perception <laughs> of us. You guys but have a I good think, reputation um, in market, buddy. No, I, 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 uh, I mean, well, honestly, I think the, the thing that we have tried to be pretty dogmatic about is the number of deals per partner. And I think in, it's in times like, like we've been through the last four or five months where it really hits home. You've got eight, nine, 10, 15 companies calling you. And that's a lot, but when you're in when you're in 2021 and everyone's up and to the right, it feels like you can do more. Um, and so I, I do think that that gives us a little bit of flexibility. I mean, I don't think by any means have we, you know, solved the, you know, uh, agency problem, the personal track record problem, the you know, um, uh, you know, a whole host of of things. But I think what we try to do. Uh, maybe two 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 things which I would say uh, that we do pretty well. One is um, just in terms of like organizationally how we've tried to uh, organize. Right, we organize by kind of sub teams within the group and try to create autonomy within those within those groups. And so instead of so I, I currently lead our our LATAM uh, investments. So I'm not fighting with my partners who are focusing on the US or Africa, right? We're, yeah. we're working as yeah, a Latin team teams. to prioritize. Correct, correct, correct. And so that, that helps a little bit. You know, we get to a place where uh, we, we, have, we still have the potential to get to a place where, you know, we're, we're having a capital allocation decision of, you know, a deal here or a deal there. But really what we're trying to do is just have really high conviction on the, um, you know, the, the absolute bar, right? Um, and if we, if we do that, then we all can kind of trust, trust that it gets there. The other thing that we have is kind of escalation internally. So as exposure gets bigger, as um, capital gets tighter, uh, as, you know, um, conflicts or decisions, uh, you know, more, um, you know, conflicts both internally, but conflicts in the portfolio, those decisions get a little bit more uh, Harry, we're escalating those and having uh, you know having meetings. But to your point, I mean, during COVID, we had the the twenty screen the twenty screen investment committee, or excuse me, twenty square investment committees, and we realized that we can't do that for everything. So there was a bit of a trade off there in terms of how we share information and work together. 
Um, and I kind of lost my original framework, but I think the other thing that we, we really, really believe culturally is that, you know, we're better when we work together. And so how do we create the incentives that, you know, when a good deal is done by one of, one of my partners or when I do a good deal, everybody is winning. And of course, that's about long, longer term incentives in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, this game takes very long time. Uh, to realize returns. Um, and it's so, a great way to get rich slowly. That's the VC mantra. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ho- hopefully get rich slowly. Right. right. Um, and, uh, and yeah, but look, I, I think, and I think we have a lot of people who buy into that. Um, and we, 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 um, we spend a lot of time, um, you know, trying to build those types of relationships and, and get the, the right people into, into our organization. We have some amazingly talented people, but I think the, one of the things that um, you know keeps us all together is this kind of culture thing, uh, and and part of that you know goes back years and years and years when you know Nigel and Frank have been working together for I don't even know know the years, but uh, since before my my career began, and you know I've known Bill Bill Slufo uh, for fifteen years, and a bunch of us kind of have this kind of common language and trust, which we have to kind of bring others into the fold, but that's kind of the foundation. So I think some combination of that, but again, by no means do we have it solved for me. We've got meetings this week to to talk about our current fund reserves and you know who 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 thinks they're going to have deals coming up in the next couple quarters and making sure we're okay with the allocation. Because the other thing we haven't done, which I think we we may eventually have to do, is think a little bit more explicitly about you know allocations uh, you know, on a forward looking basis, we don't make a lot of, um, uh, you know, rules around, Hey, you, you need to do this, put this much capital work or do this many deals or, or whatever. Um, which is good, but when things are moving, you know, fast or hot, or when we're in a a period of uncertainty, you have to be a little bit more kind of thoughtful about those things. I feel like VC partnerships are a lot like marriages. The more you're talking about the relationship, the more you're talking about how you talk, um, that meta layer, you're kind of closer to not screwing it up. It's like half the battle. So it sounds, you know, it sounds like you guys are doing the the hard work, which is talking about these things and try to figure them out because otherwise they just kind of creep up on you. No, I I think that's the last thing anybody wants to happen. Right. But, but I think the other thing, and this is um, a lot of credit to, to Nigel, right. Is we've always thought about QED as a startup kind of within itself. Right. And, you know, we've gone from what, you know, when I joined in 2016, there was, there was six of us. Now there's, you know, 20 plus on the investment team. And plus we have all the operation side of QED, which is now uh, 10 plus. And so just the, the dynamics of kind of, okay, how do we, how do we, uh, you know, build for this thing, and what's our what's our alignment long term strategy, and a little bit of just kind of having all of us think through that lens of, hey, there's no necessarily like right answer here. We're still kind of learning, and you know, this is a big part of a lot of what QED does, right? Just like, hey, if it doesn't work, we need to, to your point, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about why it doesn't work, and then you know, try something new. And if that doesn't work, we're gonna try something new. And part of that just is accepting the iteration of of learning and not not wanting to make you know same mistakes we've seen um in other places in the industry yeah i think entrepreneur types figure out pretty quickly you never can get anything right for long which is okay and so you start looking for the thing to break 
And once you start looking for it, you catch it earlier. So I think there's a little bit of a, there's a superpower in expecting something to crack. All right. You guys ha have nailed it. I mean, you become one of the preeminent names in the fintech side of the venture world now. Um, I would love to dive into how you think about the fintech world. I, I, there's a hell of a lot in fintech, especially if you're touching B2B. I know it's more, more small businesses and consumer. It's almost a horizontal. I want to call it a vertical, but it's almost a horizontal. Um, how do you think about segmenting the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting you know, vertical versus horizontal thing. I mean, certainly, you know, the... Uh, you know, um, Andreessen coined the everything is fintech, um, you know, a few years ago, Matt Harris at Bain kind of coined some, uh, something similar to kind of the fifth, uh, or I can't remember which number it was. I don't want to mess it up, but, but coined something very similar to how, it, you know, it's a, it's horizontal. Um, and, you know, I think, I think we agree. I mean, I think we think fintech touches everything. And so, and, and we also think we're still in the extremely early innings. And so, we think about kind of segmenting it, we've got our own, you know, top down view of the world that's kind of you know manifested as as different companies and, and strategies have, have uh, evolved over the years. But I think more than anything, we're trying to stay in tune with almost the bottoms up view of the world. You know, where are we seeing opportunities pop up? Which type of um, you know, entrepreneur which type of businesses are entrepreneurs, you know, more attracted to? You know, what are the big problem statements that we're seeing? You know, early stage startups go after. Um, so I think we we come from it from a from a two pronged approach, and we certainly can't cover everything. We're we're trying to be um, as proactive and you know, research and hypothesis focused as we can. So you know, di dividing things up and kind of prioritizing a bit is super helpful. But but um. But yeah, I mean, you know, I I think the big categories are are the ones you'd find on market maps. So we 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 would agree, you know, payments, lending, infrastructure. Uh, we also focus on, uh, sorry, more and more focus on prop tech and insure tech, which we view as kind of these adjacencies because they have the these really interesting elements of of large transactions and risk taking. Um, and so those are the primary spaces I think we're we're uh, we're playing in. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, we, we, what we, I think we, we try to do back to the partnership example, right. Is, 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 is formulate and talk internally about what are the interesting trends, trends that we're seeing, and then just start, start tackling them like that. Um, but, um, but the other thing I think we are also seeing is just a convergence of, of themes. I mean, a lot of, you know, what's happened in FinTech over the last, let's call it 10 years, right. Is really changing just about changing the front end little bit of, of product innovation, maybe some kind of access um, innovation, a lot of things on the data side, um, as there's been more, more and more data available, more power to, uh, to analyze it. And so you know, now, now it's really kind of about where the new, new category is going to merge and where, where does the horizontal and vertical kind of align. So I, I don't know if, um, you know, I don't know if we've, we've quite figured out where it's going to be, but there are a few places that we're, very actively uh, looking. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Tell us. <laughs> what's, what's the future yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, segmentation or sectors or opportunities in fintech? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, I think, again, we still have a lot of, a lot of catch up to do. Um, 
and depending on your view of the world of how much of you know banking will be reinvented and how much of uh, financial services will be integrated to to other things um or just like fintech is what it is today all three of those scenarios are enormous markets so um but yeah when i talk about the the future i think that um two or maybe three things that we're kind of actively thinking about one is the whole embedded finance embedded fintech embedded you know x tech uh trend that you're seeing so um you know platforms marketplaces software um that at the point of transactions can can add financial services or you know has a proprietary set of information about a certain client base whether it's a consumer or small business or even enterprise to be able to kind of you know streamline decision making purchases uh financing decisions etc within a given within a given platform um I, we're we're very very excited about that trend and we're we're pushing it from a few different different angles one is you know fintech products or fintech companies that might have the chance to to expand their business because that's a very core part uh the fintech uh option option or fintech product is a very core part of the the uh, value proposition and then the flip side right which is how does a company that you know might be a marketplace or a software uh, provider get the capability skill set organizational know-how to build you know fintech into their offering and so i think you're going to see those those companies emerge and there's also an infrastructure kind of enablement layer right is there you know is there an entire play where you can just say hey uh, this type of software you want to add this type of payments click this button here similar to kind of what what uh, i think stripe stripe has done in a lot of in a lot of ways um uh, but but much more kind of integrated i think is the future um in an insurance the same thing right when you have this kind of t- point in time it's it's it seems inevitable that those things are going to be much more streamlined given the capability to kind of integrate technologies the um the other one which is you know uh on everyone's mind is crypto web3 defi whatever whatever you want to call this leg of the world um and yeah i think we've been slowly waiting in and trying to learn and understand what's happening what can happen uh my partner frank rotman has some amazing threads on on twitter uh, maybe we can find one or two to to link here but uh you know we we a few of us have gone down that rabbit hole and trying to understand where the opportunities will come from and there certainly seems to be some promise particularly in defi and thinking about the protocols and financial services that you can kind of build uh you know build around and build on top of in a in a new new uh new world so that's one we're particularly paying attention to and still seeing a lot of activity um a little bit more uh you know high high uh high beta on where where it's going to end up but um still seems to be pretty exciting opportunities in that space. We just launched a blockchain fund at Interplay. I don't know if you knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys started to actually invest in the space or you're, you're still monitoring? So we've made, um, it depends what you mean in the space, but in the kind of crypto web three, um, you know, DeFi space, I think we've made three, four investments, maybe actually maybe a little more than that. But we we primarily started make, making investments in some of the exchanges, so mm-hmm. uh, Bitso in Mexico uh, was our first one. Uh, ShakePay 
in Canada, uh, we did. And so this was the, again, back to your B2C question earlier, right? This was something we kind of understood as the consumer value proposition, something was happening. Of course, we had Coinbase uh, as, as kind of an example or a beacon here. So that was where we started. And then we started looking at a few things in uh, the infrastructure space. So being able to add crypto to wallets, being able to uh, put stable coins into, you know, neobanks, challenger banks, we've done a, a few things there. And then we, we recently made uh, announced an investment in the DeFi space, a company called Meow, which, yeah. uh, which is, um, I think, one that we're really excited about and, and kind of have been uh, excited to learn from them and, and hopefully help, help them as we look at kind of the traditional finance world, learnings and lessons and how that how that'll impact things. So we've, we've made a few, but we are definitely just getting started. And back to your other point about capital allocation, it's been one that has a wide, wide bar on it for us trying to figure out how to get more capital there, how to structure the team incentives right as a whole host of things that we've been kind of talking about internally there. So you made the point that we're in the early days of the fintech cycle, right? Um, I think this is actually the year when George Jetson was supposed to be alive. Yes, I feel like I saw on Twitter someone celebrating his birthday recently, right? Yeah, maybe he was just born this year in, in 22. <laughs> Hey, uh, what what does what what does the future of this industry look like? Not the three to five year version with embedded finance and things that are kind of nascent but happening now. What's the 2050, 2060 reality we'll be living in with fintech if all this stuff comes to fruition? I I mean I think most things of uh, in in fintech will just be much more natural extensions of what what we're like what we're seeing. I mean, there'll be zero friction making payments. Um, you know, if you qualify, qualify for a loan, uh, you know, how, how credit is, is monitored. These things are going to be completely seamless. Um, you know, so I don't know if we're gonna have chips, chips in our brain or linked to our phones or, you know, some hologram that pops up. But, uh, but I think it's just, it's just about there, there'll be zero friction. It'll be totally just part of everyday life and not, not in a overbearing way. So like you won't even need to check your app to click to pay a bill. It'll all happen like automatically. Um, so I think this automation, less friction, seamless, like people are just going to spend a lot less time there. I think that'll probably drive profit pools down. It probably makes banks, you know, outside of money center banks, probably ba makes banks less relevant. Um, you're still going to have a kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not a, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a um, traditionalist in the sense that I, I would bet the Fed is still around and the dollar, you know, is still, uh, is still around. But like, you know, out, outside of the you know, regulation um, and making sure that consumer protections are there, it's just going to be a lot more kind of free, free flowing activity that, because you can, you can code all these things, right? And I, and I, it's beyond me of, like if the AI will take over in, in 2032 or whatever, but, uh, but I think that that's, that's the inevitable thing. And so, you know, when you're, when you're buying a car in the future, it's gonna, you're not going to have like, it's very, very, this is hopefully three years, but it's probably for like 10 to 15. You're not going to, you're not gonna have to sit in the finance department. Um, so yeah, I see it just much more open and integrated, uh, and seamless. Um, and then I think the really, really big question, which depending on which side of the bed I wake up on 
is you know how how big are the banks? How big is fintech? How big is how much of it is tech? Um, like you know, I could I could argue either side of that, but I I uh, I tend to take the long view that banks are going to be around a lot in some way, shape, or form, like they are today, longer than than I think most people think. Um, just because you kind of look at the history of financial services and regulation, and you know, impact of the political impacts of going through crises and you know, just going through the instability that the world's going through right now, like very very hard to do that without banking regulation and, and central banks. Um, so I, I'm kind of taking a long view there, but I hope it'll look a lot better and I hope it'll be, I hope it'll be more accessible and more affordable, especially, you know, when you look to, I mean, U S has its, has its issues for sure, but you know, you look around the world, there's a lot of, um, you know, impact that we can have that we as a society, right. On other people's lives and well being by making financial services, a available and, 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 you know, affordable and usable for people as they're kind of growing into the middle class or, you know, getting those, those first jobs or moving, you know, from one end of a country to another. I mean, it's, I, again, I work in, a lot in Latin America and to see the impact that financial services can have on people's lives is, uh, you know, hopefully something that comes from whatever, whatever we do right in the next 50 years. Yeah. I think the thing that I take away from that, which I agree with is seamlessness, no more forms, customer service, checkout lines, you know, opacity of your information. I think this is just going to get easier and simpler and kind of move to the background. Um, what does this sector need, right? As we're thinking about what's getting us between here and there, what are the constraints? Is it capital? Is it labor? What, what, what do entrepreneurs need to do to help move this forward? What does the market need? How can people contribute? Yeah, I mean... I think, you know, I think that uh, capital and labor seem to have not been issues recently, right? It's not a niche segment anymore uh, in terms of investing in, in fintech companies and seeing the long-term opportunities. So there's certainly capital there. And I think, again, maybe recent months notwithstanding, right, the, the flow of talent to startups generally, but also into fintech from you know, more traditional companies, banks, consulting firms, you know, MBA graduates, engineering graduates, um, you know, it's trending up, right? It's not, uh, it, it hasn't been a huge issue. Um, so I, I think there's probably an argument to be made at some point that there's, there's too many fintech companies right now. But I don't think that that, that means that we're all kind of focused on the, the biggest, biggest things. You know, I think one of the dangers uh, that we see in fintech is a lot of copycats, a lot of um, companies that are you know unsure of how they're really going to d differentiate. And so I think I think that differentiation point is probably the the biggest thing. But you know I, I think if you know entrepreneurs broadly are looking at problems that financial ser like financial services create, like that's the thing that we need. We just need. Uh, people who are long-term oriented or realistic about, um, again, movement of money and regulations and banking, right? Uh, to to understand that th this isn't going to happen, you know, necessarily overnight for some of these things, and then you know the ability to really understand understand the problem. So I'd say for any would-be you know entrepreneurs, uh, come come on over, uh, start talking about your your ideas, you know, sooner than later. 
um, really understand your, your problems. And there, I think there's plenty, plenty of room, but I, I would, I would just, you know, I think it's really easy to, you know, say, you know, fintech's exciting or banks need to be recreated and then just try to create a prettier version of the same thing. I think that's a, that's a little bit of the, um, I think some reaction to what the market's uh, having to valuations uh, is have we, you know, have we really, really questioning like how much have we really changed? Um, and, you know, I think it's a very fair, fair question for, for the sector. Okay. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. You're, you run the LATAM practice at QED. And um, it seems to me that Latin America, as far as tech and innovation, has really awoken. Why LATAM now? What's changed? Why, why, didn't, why is now the time you guys are putting your eyes down there versus 10 years ago, 15 years ago? What, what triggered this? Well, we made our first investment seven years ago in Brazil. And it happened to be Nubank, which was a very fortunate uh, happenstance. <clears throat> um, and so I think what we've seen the last seven years um, is talent coming in to the tech sector, um, regulators really opening the door for innovation, um, and the ability to create uh, like a very resilient business model. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, there are a lot of problems and a lot of issues and um, solving those things have high rewards. And so if you get something right, like what, what new bank was able to do in the banking and credit card space and basically rebuilding everything from scratch, uh, changing the, the experience and really moving the entire industry forward, you know, the, the prizes can be quite, quite large uh, because you build in this kind of resiliency in the business model. Really what I mean by that is margins and unit economics. There's a lot of really good growth in, in a lot of these markets, uh, but also the kind of value creating from the, from the infrastructure. And so I think the more we've learned about LATAM, and again, it's very hard to generalize Latin America because it's a lot of different countries, but like there are a lot of issues in a lot of sectors and financial services is, you know, usually a culprit uh, for, for some of the bigger problems. And, um, and so that just has us keep getting excited about, you know, different, different spaces and different opportunities. And that combined with the talent point, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a no, no brainer uh, for us. So, so yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be, you know, I've been kind of framing, we've been in LATAM for seven years. I think we're trying to figure out how to make sure we're there the, the next seven. And we've been fortunate to be part of this, this run up. Um, and I don't mean run up in terms of, you know, market bubble or anything. I mean, the ecosystem being built, you know, real companies kind of being built, you know, or some of the early winners um, and that just really accelerated the ecosystem. Um, so we're, we're, we're definitely big, big believers in, you know, I'm paid to be a believer, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's as exciting as anywhere, anywhere in the world right now. On the outside, you know, real outsider in Latin America, when you look at this, you're thinking, hey, there's probably a lot of white space. There's a lot of infrastructure and company profiles that we have in the States or in Europe that probably haven't fully been built out there. Does that make it easier or harder for the next startup to succeed operationally? 
The easier argument is like, hey, it's white space. You can go build it in. Harder is the industry, the economy hasn't gone through the same series of functional evolutions that maybe we've gone through rep after rep in the States. Now, maybe that scar tissue gets in the way of building the next new thing. Or is it, you know, or is it creating white space? So, so um, I think it's both, but it, to not cop out, I think almost all of them, it makes it harder and they don't realize it. Meaning, um, hey, the, this, this works here. Let me bring it here. Some version of this needs to ex- exist. And they don't have the kind of realization that, that, that you just described. I think that one of the major differentiations of the big opportunities is the, uh, the lens that makes it easy. It's, hey, I have this insight, but I know it has to be different. And I know that it, it will be hard. And so because I know these things before, it's actually easier. Um, is the, the reason why it's easier in that sense is when you do it right, you're, you're in a market that is, it's, again, it's, it's much less dynamic than the US. It's, it's much smaller. But you're in a market where you can really distinguish yourself early. And that has a lot of um, kind of power for scaling, um, you know, raising capital, attracting talent, um, you know, doing things that doing things. And, and then that gives you the freedom to do things the right way. And so I think it's, it's, it's one of these markets where, you know, and this is true in any startup, there, there really are no short, shortcuts and you have to do the hard work. And the sooner you kind of realize that, um, you know, the, the better off you're going to be because it's that much harder in a lot of these, these markets. And so I think the, the real kind of flaw is thinking it's easy because you've seen the model somewhere else and then not realizing how hard it is. So you're based out of Tampa, Florida. How do you pull off being a Latin American focused investor from the States? I'm very lucky that, um, to be, to be accepted, <laughs> honestly. Uh, so, you know, before COVID I was on a lot of planes, um, you know, building a lot of relationships and, uh, and now of course my life is, is a lot more kind of zoom and video. Um, but, uh, but no, I think it's a, it's a very humbling question because I, you know, when I first showed up in Sao Paulo in 2016, uh, visiting, you know, Creditas and, and New Bank and some other entrepreneurs, like I was certainly an outsider by, uh, you know, almost any definition. Um, but, uh, but kind of, I think what, 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 um, what we found as QED and what I was able to kind of be part of was, bringing some of the you know, skills and experiences that, that we had had and trying to help, you know, help entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, as you, uh, as a, again, as a, as a fund, but hopefully I, I, it's a little bit about me, this is true too. Um, but, you know, as a fund, when you, when you're actually helpful and part of a, a good story, it kind of builds upon itself. And so we, um, Make no mistake, I think we are uh, extremely fortunate to have some of that wind at our backs. But I think at the same time, you know, we've been very willing to to roll up our sleeves and, and do the work. And that work isn't, you know, hey, let me introduce you to this kind of local uh, politician or this local potential client. It's much more, um, you know, hey, here's how you manage risk. Here's how we should set up our organization. Here's kind of what we've seen in other markets. Here's who you should talk to you know, in terms of, uh, you know, financing markets. So 
there's certain things we're able to do and not able to do. And I think we've just owned, try, or let me, let me say this, so we've tried to own that and not in, kind of under promise and over deliver, if you will. Um, so I've been incredibly fortunate. Um, a lot of it is, is right place, right time. And, um, you know, I, uh, I was just in Brazil last week and very much look forward to, to going back in a few months. You know, one of the subtexts of that question is there's a lot of cultural cues that we all rely on when we're meeting other humans, right? We look for how they communicate their voice inflection, um, commonalities, commonplaces, things that help us kind of navigate or figure out good, bad, right, wrong. And they're base level stuff that we probably learned in childhood. How do you figure out, you know, as a team investor, which is part of your thesis, I know, how do you kind of figure out the, the right profile of a founding team or a founder when you're looking at the Latin American market? What, what signal can you find that translates, um, that helps you identify, hey, this is the kind of person I want to back? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing question because it's something that, you know, I think is, is one of the most important investing questions. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I was, uh, I mean, I'm still a relatively new investor, period. Um, so I've got that, that challenge as well. But going into to COVID, I was very much reluctant to invest where I hadn't met, you know, in person. Um, and I think it's still a hard thing for us to, to accept, but I think it's a little less culturally like, um, than, than your, your question implies, you know, a lot of, um, the entrepreneurs we talk to, you know, we, we know people they've worked with, worked for, went to school with, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it feels, it feels the same as any other market. Um, and I think we have our ways that kind of referencing and, and trying to get to know people. But for me personally, it really is about spending the time to, to get to know, you know, who, who you're, you're about to, uh, you know, get married to, uh, because, you know, we're trying to take this, this long view and know we're going to be stuck together for their, if things, especially if things go well for the next seven plus years. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, but, but to, you know, it's, it's definitely challenging at times to try to do it, try to do over zoom. And, um, there's probably a little bit of a bias that, you know, we need to get rid of as well, just because, you know, you, you know, you, you've liked things that you've worked with in the past. And sometimes that can get you, um, you know, investing in people who look like you or have done the same things as you. And, um, you know, we know that's not the best way to, to attract the best talent either. Um, so we're constantly looking at it. I mean, we just, we just hired someone in Sao Paulo, which I'm extremely excited about. Uh, to join our join our team, and I think it's going to help us with a bunch of, you know, local uh, local efforts and and helping um, really show the market that we are kind of there to stay and and we're here to kind of um, you know, take these businesses to the next level. Okay, but I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. What is the founder profile for you for Latin America? I, Certain type of experience you want to see. What are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think. We don't, I mean, we don't really screen founder profile, but I think we're looking for, um, you know, very, very tactically, uh, somebody who, um, you know, 
I mean, again, it's, it's very, it's, it's very generic saying because it's not like, but somebody who really understands the problem where they've worked in the space, studied the space, you know, somebody who, um, you know, both understands the local markets, right. Which we were trying to get through referencing and through kind of questioning and, you know, who we, um, who we know and what we've seen because remember we now have seven years of, of history in, in these markets. Um, you know, we're looking for somebody who um, has humility, right? Who's open to being challenged, who doesn't, you know, is, is willing to admit they don't have all the answers. We're looking for somebody who wants a partner in building their business. Um, this is one of the harder things to get. You're also looking for somebody who has, you know, enough kind of ambition and willpower uh, and, you know, the ability to attract talent. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's all of these, these things. And I don't think that, you know, there's maybe a little bit of like over indexing on our network because it's further away geographically, but, uh, but, um, it's pretty, it's pretty much the same, uh, as what we look for globally. Now, what did, things, I, did I cop out twice? No, or you did you, I get it that time. No, but that time you went for it at least, which I appreciate it. Um, one of the things that's, uh, <laughs> challenging about a lot of other geographies that I think American entrepreneurs take for granted. We saw it in a lot in Europe is when you've got um, these geographies that are split up into a lot of smaller population states relative to the enormous spread of the states. You're very often dealing with different languages, different regulatory regimes, different cultural dynamics, you know, and in the States it's not seamless, but it's pretty close to it. And that makes it a really attractive, aggregated, large market. How, what are the challenges folks are facing as they're going from Mexico to Colombia to Brazil and back? I know those are three of the big hubs. What are any tips or issues you're seeing as, as companies kind of try to conquer the entire expanse of the market? Yeah, well, just first of all, I think we... Um, totally agree with your your point that crossing borders isn't seamless and hard and so a lot of what we try to do is you know look for opportunities that can be underwritten in a single geography um, or kind of clear paths to kind of expanding geographies um, so that's been a little bit of a um, I don't know, cheat or crutch that we, that we've used to try to, and it's why we're mostly in Brazil and Mexico uh, versus some of the other, the other markets because they're, they're sizable enough and, um, you know, homogenous enough. Now that said, you know, companies that are, are crossing over in all the directions and permutations that you just mentioned are having various challenges. I mean, particularly entering Brazil is something that is, very, very hard and very different. I mean, not, it's obvious you have a, a language barrier, but it's also just culturally, you know, what the kind of business uh, networks are. It's just a very, very different market than than the others. And so, you know, we have companies like uh, Kavak and Bitso and Betterfly, uh, Tribal, uh, Zubile are all entering or have entered Brazil over the last couple of years. And, you know, they've uh, I think mostly gone in with eyes wide open, but it certainly hasn't been 
you know, turn, you know, set up a high, higher country head and, and never go down. I mean, some of these founders are living in Sao Paulo or are trying to kind of integrate. Some of them are, are doing things that's a little bit more inorganic, um, you know, making some aqua hires or, or acquisitions to help supplement. Um, but that, that's a very, very tough, uh, tough, tough one to, to move. I think the Colombia to Mexico one we've seen, has been a little more, uh, a little more smooth given some of the kind of, again, business network overlaps and, and, uh, uh, just the traditional there. So, but, but what we're really, you know, unless it's a, well, we, something we would say is a truly kind of global business We're we're advising companies to stay in their markets until they're, they're tapped out. And we, we view it as a flag. If you're an early stage company trying to expand markets too fast, that, that, that either that market isn't as big as you think, or your product isn't as good as, as you think. Uh, it's kind of a focus uh, question as well. Um, and sorry, I know I've gone on longer than you wanted for this one, but the, the regulatory regimes, I think we take, we take a lot of, uh, time to, to really try to under, understand that. Um, because that's that's one of the biggest things for some of our companies is making sure you know when you enter Mexico in the in the banking space or um, you know lending space you have to be regulated a certain way your companies get get looked at a certain way and so those are the real barriers that we're kind of looking for and uh, making sure when the companies actually do cross borders they're doing those those things with eyes wide open on the risk side yeah the other dimension of this that comes to mind for me is the currency risk. How do you guys manage against volatile currencies? Not like the U.S. is always the most stable these days, but yeah, you're dealing with a bunch of different currencies just as you're spreading, you know, to new market opportunities. Any, yeah, so I mean, any we hacks invest, for that? No hacks. Um, long-term orientation and and hope for the best. I think the uh, you know we realize there's going to be volatility. We realize we're taking some currency risk. Um, you know, I think there there may be some implied uh, uh, hedges we're making in terms of, you know, what, how much resiliency we see in the business, you know, through margins or, um, you know, the, maybe a, we're, we're entering at a better kind of price versus, you know, global peers. Um, but there's really no, there's no trick to it. It's, it's almost impossible to, uh, to hedge, um, you know, what's your, what's your portfolio is worth and what it's going to be. We do invest in dollars and expect to exit in dollars. So it's, it's definitely, definitely a risk. Um, and again, I think the best thing that best answer we've had to it is, Hey, you're going to go through these cycles and you're not going to be able to t- exactly time, you know, exits and cycles. And so you need a company that is going to have the optionality to, you know, work, work through it. Um, if need be. So if any, if anything goes to plan and we see it more as a, you know, IRR risk, um, if you will, just in terms of timing, as opposed to, um, you know, existential or principal risk. Very much appreciate that. You've been at this for a while. You've seen a lot of reps now, right? You've been at this since 2013, you're going on 10 years. What's the most important thing you've learned as an investor? Any wisdom you could leave behind? So I've I've only been doing this since the beginning of sixteen, so it's even shorter than you than you you said, um, which is even more uh, humbling to be asked to ask the question. And in some some respect, I've been looking at the market since since then. Um, but uh, but look, I think the thing that I keep coming back to is just you know the people that you that you work with and how important that is. Um, you know, everything's not going to go right. 
Um, it never does. Uh, it always takes takes real time and real work. And so you want to be you want to be with people um, on that journey who you respect, you you want to you want to work with, who you'd work be willing to work for, um, and kind of have that kind of partnership. And so I still think that um, you know I, I under underestimate that for for longer than um, than I than I could have. And we again, we've been fortunate to work with some amazing people. So some people teaching me the the lesson on the on the positive side. So that's probably the biggest one for me, and the one that I you know continue to put the most most focus in um, how to get to the right you know the right relationships and right answers. Mike, thanks for taking the time today. Mark, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Appreciate you grilling me on a few of these things, <laughs> and uh, look forward to to crossing paths maybe maybe in Latin America. Love that. Mike's the man. Really appreciate him taking the time to to give us a little lesson here today on fintech in Latin America. Um, there's not a lot of USBCs focused down there yet. I think that's going to be showing up more and more. So it's great to get his insights fairly early in the development of the capital ecosystem. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube or any major podcast platform. Just search for innovation with Mark Peter Davis.